if I did this book in two years' time after it was all over, so I can do the whole, here's exactly how it all happened from start to finish. Well, then people sanitize their own accounts. That's very obvious. That will happen. That people will be like, ah, was that, was my experience with X person that bad? Ah, no, I think he's all right, you know. Or that people as well, once we're all through this, that we might go, I don't want to go back there again. I don't want to talk about COVID again. I want to mentally close the chapter on that, which is completely understandable. I think that a lot of people will will do that. So I think now is the time to sort of get out there, sort of have a look at how this was managed in its early stages, how it affected people right across this country, how it affected our frontline healthcare workers, and really do this before we start to do the real unpacking and putting it away, really, you know? So I think that that's, that's kind of the real justification to it, and people seem to have gotten that. Richard Chambers has written a one-of-a-kind book dedicated to the Irish healthcare workers who saved countless lives and the memory of those who are no longer with us. It's called State of Emergency, the story of Ireland's COVID crisis. And it really is a story that is continuing to be told even this week as government officials back home started the process of reeling back in the lifting of restrictions announced just last month. I can tell you, it's a massively frustrating time for people at home and abroad. And can we really have perspective on something we're living through in the moment? Well, Richard doesn't just contend that we can. He maintains we have to. Uh, This book has caused a bit of a stir since Stephen Donnelly went on TV and essentially lied to the public about being asked to contribute to it. I had the chance to sit down and talk to Richard about that, uh, writing the book itself, the response and... What lies ahead for Ireland now that both vaccination and infection numbers are so high? To hear the entire conversation and upcoming interviews with James O'Brien, Ivana Lynch, Claire Walsh and Jack Whitehall in full, head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and start enjoying unlimited access to Irishman Abroad Premium today. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme... What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Richard Chambers, it's brilliant to have you back on Irish Man Abroad. I can't believe it's nine months since we last spoke and you were kind enough to come on a couple of times on our Corona pod to give listeners abroad a sense of what the hell was going on back home. And at that time, the question was whether we'd get back for Christmas at all. That Christmas forms a huge part of this book that you've written, A State of Emergency, The Story of Ireland's COVID Crisis. There had to be a concern, though, even right to the point of pulling the trigger and going, we're doing this, that people would say, oh, Jesus, I don't want to read about that. That's a concern that seems to filter through the publicity that you've been doing for the book. 
And have you got any clearer on the answer to those people? Yeah, I think people who had that feeling. So a lot of people would have said that to me. They're like, oh, I don't know if I can read any more about COVID or sure we're living it. Why would I need to read about it? But I think over time, as people have been exposed to what the book is, what it's about, what stories are told in it, they've been like, okay, this actually has a real value. Because, and I mean, like one of the obvious questions about should I do a book about this is, well, it won't be, it'll be released before it's all over. And I'm like, that's okay, because you have to then do all of the interviews fairly contemporaneously. All of the key players, your your Taoiseachs, your health ministers, your CMOs, your heads of the HSE are all in place. All of their relationships, all of their dynamics are current. They're all very real. They, their experiences that they're detailing are with people they spend the next, you know, three hours in a meeting with after they've done the interview with me. Like, you know, so it's all very real. Mm. It's very raw. Um, but I also feel like if two points on this, if I did this book in two years time after it was all over so I can do the whole, here's exactly how it all happened from start to finish. Well, then people sanitize their own accounts. That's very obvious. That will happen. The people will be like, ah, was that was my experience with X person that bad? Ah, No, I think he's all right, you know, or that people as well. Once we're all through this, that we might go, I don't want to go back there again. I don't want to talk about COVID again i want to mentally close the chapter on that which is completely understandable i think that a lot of people will will do that so i think it now is the time to sort of get out there sort of have a look at how this was managed in its early stages how it affected people right across this country how it affected our frontline healthcare workers and really do this before we start to do the real unpacking and putting it away really you know so i think that that, that's kind of the real justification to it and people seem to have gotten that well uh, you know it really bugs me when people say Oh, geez, I couldn't go to a comedy show about COVID. How, sure, how would you even write jokes about it? And part of me goes, but that's that's why we're the comedians. Oh. <laughs> you're the people coming to shows. That's why people are making films and you're not. That your job here is to write a book about this thing that other people can't write for themselves. Otherwise, they would. Uh, you had a position throughout this whole thing that nobody else had. And clearly you had a position just in terms of your energy and just the grind that is all over this book in terms of the hours and the air miles in terms of interviewing people. I imagine that you're completely burned out now. Um, That's actually a good point. Like I, I've definitely felt burned out at different points of it. I think now as we're sort of coming towards the end of the year and now it sort of feels like oh things are quite quite difficult again you kind of feel like okay you can sort of go into emergency mode and you're sort of you're you're, you're running on fumes again that's what i kind mm. of feel like at the moment so there's a bit of that now yeah but you were getting up at five to write this and you obviously weren't telling people that you're writing this book and that obviously has to be a thought now that you're doing the rounds promoting it and as you say everything's so current do you worry about its impact on your ability to get people to open up to you in the future? No, I wouldn't say so, because I think the the, the vast, vast majority of people who sat down and did an interview for this book um, really understood the value of the project. And they wanted to be honest. And they were super honest, um, very blunt, uh, I would say, most people at times. But they saw that there was a value in doing this and chronicling this. 
mm. so we can have this this record of of how it was i'm not worried about people not talking to me in the future i'm not <laughs> okay. i think that the value of the journalism i do i know i do I, I think that like the value of the journalism i've been very fair all the way through uh, and I think that, that that'll stand to me. Yeah. So I'm not really worried about that as such. Okay. Although some people I'm absolutely certain are going to be quite annoyed about some of their portrayals in the book, people in high office. But that's that's going to happen. Yeah, that's just going to happen. Well, that's part of it. Let's get to that right away then, because, as you say, people were brutally honest. And in some ways, I feel that that speaks to the you know, the the operating principle behind the book, which is why can't we learn in motion, in game, uh, from mistakes that are taking place in the first quarter. You know, regardless of what happens from here, uh, the people that spoke to you and were critical of those in charge obviously wanted that voice heard and felt that it was important that people knew this is how this person behaved. This is what they did. This is how they made me feel. Yeah, I think and I do appreciate them doing that. because That's a difficult thing for people to do, whether you're in the HSE or you're in NEFIT or you're in government, to basically put that out there and trust the journalist that he's not going to burn you. Do you know what I mean? Or or that this is going to have some ramifications for them. Yeah, that's what happened. I mean, I think you're referring to some of the commentary uh, in the book around uh, the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, mm. from senior NEFIT and HSE sources, some of whom compared him to uh, Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. Uh, in that he was oblivious to media appearances, which were somewhat disastrous, like the trampoline situation people might remember from last year. Uh, they Explain that to him. people who don't remember that. Yeah, so basically there was an appearance that Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, did uh, with my colleague Zara King on Virgin Media Television, uh, in which he compared the risk of COVID-19 in schools to allowing kids to jump on a trampoline, which is not a, it's not a comment that went down particularly well with the public, with people in schools, with in government, within the health service, uh, and it seemed to stick to him for a while. But he fairly stands over his comments to this day. He said he probably he said he told me he'd probably choose a different uh, a different word. Perhaps he'd said it's more like a risk of riding a bicycle, uh, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure it quite gets to the point that this is quite a flippant way to describe um, a global pandemic. In which yeah, people's yeah. Lives are I mean, doesn't that doesn't that reflect something? There And even in the last few days, the uh, appearance on Claire Byrne, where he said he wasn't going to read the book, even that you know dismissal of the issue here, miss, just missing the point seems to be a problem for the man. Well, look, I mean, I, I want to be fair to, to, to the minister. What doesn't deserve to be noted is that the health minister went on primetime on RT and said that I hadn't contacted him to give him a response to some of the stuff that people said that isn't the case he was contacted himself personally multiple times as well as his advisor multiple times to give him uh, an opportunity to say and it just didn't happen i would say as well like i mean when you're trying to do a, a rounded picture of the thing I, and i've made this point in actual other interviews as well so there's a lot of harsh criticism for stephen donnelly people have seen him as uh, marginal uh, being pushed to the side of the COVID management in this country. That's people in NEFID and the HSE would, would say that. But I've also made the point of saying, well, look, from his perspective, he's presided over the most successful vaccination programme in Europe. He's also brought in a public health consultant contract, which is something that people have been crying out for for for, de- for literal decades now and would have, have a huge impact on how 
this pandemic would have been run if it was there in the first place. Also, things like he made an intervention in, in January to make sure that the vaccines got quickly into nursing homes. And that was something which he had to go out on a limb to do. So, look, I'm not here to, to sort of say things about Stephen Donnelly. I'm, I'm reporting and it is worth noting and it is very much in the public interest that people very high up in the HSE and NEFET have some very, very deep misgivings about the health minister in this crisis. And I think that's important to highlight, even if, you know, it might be uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel like the biggest attraction of the last dance. I know I tend to bring everything back to the last dance. <laughs> I, know, I was waiting. I was yeah. going to time how long we were getting to we, the last we get, dance. Where do we get? We made it 12 minutes. <laughs> Is the humanisation of what was essentially rock stars. Uh, I, behind the scenes documentaries, yeah. that's what it's all about for me is them eating a sandwich, <laughs> you know, mm. and I really feel that this seems to have been a mission of uh, this book that uh, I, I've even been trying to write jokes about this specifically, that if the news carried clauses where it said we would remind you that the minister is just a human being and is trying his very mm. best at this moment in time, the book does that. It definitely humanizes a lot of people that we just previously saw as heads was that a name? Yes, absolutely. Because I think people, and and you'd see this in the UK as well, that you see these very sort of pristine or sometimes very unpristine sort of government press briefings or health press briefings with whether it's Boris Johnson and Jonathan Van Tam and the likes doing their presentations at Downing Street or over here, Micheál Martin standing at a podium and Tony Houlihan and the guys on, on NEFA doing these very clean, very sanitised press conferences. Whereas everybody who stands at a microphone and makes these decisions as well, they're humans. They're all affected by this, too. Mm. And I think that it is important to try and get that across to people and give people an insight into who these people are, because these people have had a huge impact on all of our lives for the last two years. They have been the faces of the pandemic in many ways. They've been the faces of some of the restrictions that have governed our lives. And they've been the ones who have had to carry the bag for when things go wrong, when things go wrong and when we have surges and, you know, thinking back to last Christmas, that these are the people who are ultimately the ones who are going to be held responsible if there is any findings in a future inquiry about that or, or whatever, or whether or not, whatever the case may be. But these are the people who are ultimately responsible for their hands on the levers of these things. And you need to be able to bring that across. So things like Michal Martin's dietary habits are, are, are stuff that I put into the book like obviously Cork man he's driving up in the car from Cork and he get, makes his own salads every day he keeps a whole batch of them in the fridge and he'd sit there until late at night eating away at his table stuff like you know Tony Hoolan the very first page in the book it, like it starts in Dillinger's restaurant in Ranala a very sort of cool and hip spot but he was out for dinner with his family and he was just preoccupied about this idea of this, these mysterious cases of pneumonia, which were starting in Wuhan. And mm. um, so, like, I mean, it's just about trying to bring people in and try and, you know, as I sort of described there as being a very sanitary environment, these very sort of, you know, these, 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 these plush press conferences and government announcements, just sort of desanitizing that, cracking the can open effectively and seeing what's inside. Yeah, I mean... I'll watch any any of these things or read any number of books that take me behind the curtain. And sometimes, you know, when we say humanize, the automatic assumption is to understand that they're, you know, they're there's goodness or they're they're not a bad guy after all. But, you know, sometimes 
that's what's revealed in the humanization isn't brilliant. I mean, The Last Dance is a good example of that. We we understood that this to get this done, this guy, Michael Jordan, had to be a prick. And yeah. that's that's the facts. I feel like that's really, yeah, it's a good comparison. It is true of, of Tony, right? Yeah, I mean, that is that if you were looking for like the Michael Jordan of the last dance, it's Tony Houlihan in a state of emergency, really, in that uh, he, he is just this totemic figure who became went from. I mean, most people in the country probably wouldn't name the chief medical officer of their country before all of this happened. Hmm. Like that's 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 the normal thing to happen. But basically, over the course of from from last February onwards, he became a household name. People looked up to him as this sort of this almost, you know, father figure in some ways. Some people did at the start that he was the man guiding us through this really scary emergency. Some people in, you know, of the people who he worked with in, in Neffet would say that his methods could be quite, in their words, words, authoritarian, that he wouldn't suffer fools, that if he you said something stupid in a meeting, he would let you know all about it. Um, that he could be quite brutal almost in a way, that he had this very, you know, very authoritarian, what I say goes sort of way. And that's balanced out too, though, because it's balanced out too by many of the same people would, who would be critical of how he does things, would also say, by God, I have no idea how we would have gotten through it without somebody who is that guy who's just pushing you, who's yeah. pushing you and, and clarity, saying, look, we need to get through this. There's one, there's, yeah, there's that one, there's one quote I remember from a, a guy who's very senior in Neffet. He's like, I remember when we were doing all those press conferences at the start. And to be blunt, this is what he said. He says, I remember going to those press conferences so many times and thinking we are fucked over X, Y, and Z. And Tony, in their view, was never, they never showed any fear. That fear was completely alien to him. And that they turn up at the press conferences alongside him and they'd think, Jesus, maybe we will get through this. Maybe we will get through this. But there was almost like this sort of like, I mean, let's go for it. I mean, there's that Churchillian sort of comparison that there's a brutishness to the methods. Mm. But in a wartime situation, sometimes the feeling amongst these people in Neffet and the HSE and in government too, despite the clashes they would have had with them, was that there was no better person to do this job. And then there are people that aren't. Like Tony Hill and fans who just yeah. think that, you know, he hamstrung their business, uh, that, you know, they were comparing Ireland to other nations and going, look at them. Why is this guy on this power trip? You must have encountered those people, too. Yeah, to some degree, like we encounter people like that every day and everybody is going to be frustrated and upset and affected. But like there's not a single person in this country who hasn't been affected by the pandemic, whether that's they've become sick themselves, whether they've been admitted to hospital, whether, whether a loved one of theirs has, has died from this, or whether they've lost their business, which they spent years of their lives building up. They might have lost their job. They might have been furloughed, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, that there will always be questions and criticisms of um, how things are done. I think one of the one of the ways which I wanted to highlight that is around things like maternity care and cancer care as well, that some of these things which should have happened uh, and would happen normally, were very much suffered the impact of what was thought would be important in an infection control point of view. So I speak to one one couple in particular, uh, Louise and Neil Byrne, uh, who went through an, just an extraordinarily traumatic experience of a miscarriage in, mm-hmm. in, at, a, at a maternity hospital in Dublin. And all of this was in the name of restrictions. And there are people within the SE who are like, some of the stuff that's happened over the past year in the name of infection control, they actually asked some of the experts in infection control whether this was necessary or not. 
the secondary harms of some of the things and restrictions is something that we're going to have to to deal with. I, I, I've, I've chatted to a lot of people who are oncologists or people in the Irish Cancer Society who worry about the long-term impacts of cancers which might have been missed out of diagnosis. And that's that's something we are going to have to deal with, that there is a secondary harm, that there is uh, there is a fallout to all of these things, that every action, however big or however small, will have so many different reactions and consequences and that's something I really wanted to shine on too. That you know, the story of COVID in Ireland isn't just about COVID. Yeah, and sometimes I feel like this um, vaccine take-up thing is the uh, marriage referendum all over again. That it's mm. like, but sure, didn't we do that now? And sure, that takes care of anyone who has any questions about us because we're the best little boy in class. We did this mm. great thing. And it kind of brushes a lot of stuff under the carpet. Would you agree? I think, well, I think, it, well, like, I mean, the the, the COVID-19 situation that's handling in this country started a long time before the vaccine programme. So to say and just point to the vaccine programme as that's our only answer on this is completely mm. like it, it misses the whole story, doesn't yeah. it? You'd also point to things. It's very interesting. You hear that a lot of the ministers in the Taoiseach will also point out to this Bloomberg resiliency <laughs> index, which Ireland has come out on top of multiple times. And it's like the George Oak like, happiness index. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like what, what's happening? Why, why is this? Why is this completely almost arbitrary measure become something which we're now holding on to? But it does. It does miss the point. It does miss the point. We had, you know, in comparison to some other countries, we had a lesser a disastrous experience than some countries. We had a much worse experience than other countries. We have huge infection rates in this country still by European standards. Not Nobody is entirely sure why, but it's worth reflecting on. You can't get everything right. And I don't think anybody in government or in you know the health service who've had to manage this is ever going to get everything right. But it's worth reflecting on the decisions. It's worth reflecting on, mm. well, are we doing quite as well as we look on paper? And I think that, you know, when people do reflect on it and they do this in a sort of a, I don't want to say in a holistic way, because it makes me sound like one of those sort of, you yeah, know, those rugby coaches could, who talk. Could some of these deaths be avoided? I, I hear you. Uh, like, yeah, but, yeah. but, it's, but like we, we just need to examine it. And I think if there is an appetite now to do that. There has been a bit of a long fingering of that as well. There has been a sort of a sense from government of, well, we can't we can't start that process because we're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You can understand that, that we're, we need to let the people who would be appearing at, at, at these sort of meetings or inquiry meetings, we need to let them do their job and get us through this. That makes sense to me. Like, you know, that, that, that makes sense. It might not be, you know, what I agree with or what everybody, anybody else might agree with, but that's that's the justification. But there is going to be a call to have a look at all of this and see was everything handled in the right way down to things like even PPE and and, and things like that. Yeah. So look, there's going to be obviously at times there's going to be a from from government. Obviously, they're going to say, well, look, there's lessons to be learned. But I think that the, the lessons to be learned also go beyond that. We can't just look at the government. We need to look at how we all prepare ourselves for what happens next, because we've seen this even in like in, over the course of the book. I talk about this as well, like the, the coronavirus COVID-19. Like we we had other novel coronavirus viruses which were very serious in the past fifteen years before that in SARS and MERS. These things are happening more and more regularly. We haven't had that sort of pandemic flu situation that we've been uh, preparing for and people have been preparing for for years. That could still happen. We could see new pathogens and viruses flare up as well. We all need as people and as a society to learn. Well, how are we going to deal with this? What lessons are we going to learn from this hugely traumatic experience that we've all gone through? Because at a certain point in this book, you refer to how close 
you know, disaster or for greater disaster was. And you say that if we were to talk to the people from Nefed, they would say that it was avoided through a certain amount of dumb luck in a way. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that a little bit further f- for people who haven't read the book yet? Yeah, I think it, basically that the, the message is that there was a huge amount of chance, that chance had a huge role to play in how Ireland has experienced the pandemic and preventing a situation like Bergamo or in Lombardy in northern Italy or like other countries we've seen uh, have hugely devastating COVID outbreaks. That there was this element of chance that, you know, if certain people who were infectious went to, say, band class or went to a concert on one night, we could have had a surge of infections, which we we wouldn't have noticed until too late in the game because we didn't have testing up and running as we wouldn't at the start of the pandemic if we had held off on restrictions at the start for a couple of days there was on the first day at home lockdown announced at the end of last march they announced that on a friday and there was a little bit of a feeling of they could have left us until the monday but there's a feeling in effort that if we didn't do that then we would have breached our icu capacity breaching icu capacity is the worst thing that can happen mm. in these situations because icu people are the most trained they have they're so specialist that taking people who need critical care outside of critical care units is where you have those sort of Bergamo scenes, th- those sort of situations where it becomes something else else entirely. So it is, it's quite a humbling thing to hear that there was an element of chance around this, that, you know, but for the grace of God, but for the grace of some luck in some people not turning up to things which they could have turned up to when they had COVID and, and just the element of timing around some of these things, that things could have been just a huge amount worse. And have you ever got a picture of exactly how much worse they would have been? It's impossible to sort of to sort of look at that. But like when we've seen it in countries around us, like we've seen it in the UK, for example. Do you remember at the start Mm. where, for example, you know, you had pictures of doctors and nurses who were using effectively bin bags. They were so strapped for PPE that this is what they were resorting to. We in this country were very close to a situation where our PPE would have been completely exhausted. Like I told I talk in the book to a really incredible guy. His name is Sean Bresnan. Uh, he's the head of procurement in the HSE. And he basically just went on this charm offensive to beg, borrow and to take any PPE we could get. But there was a point uh, in March where there's a weekend where he had to effectively draft up an order to we're going to have to have the PPE to all of these different hospitals across the country because we, we're not sure if this plane is arriving from China with these masks and gowns. And there's the HSE team at literally at the stand on the on the apron of the runway at Dublin Airport looking at their watches and hoping this is going to this is going to land because we're going to be in a different situation otherwise like things like that are just really it is very much to by the skin of your teeth you're avoiding these absolutely horrendous situations and that's not to say that the situation we were in wasn't horrendous anyway because mm-hmm. the impact it's had on so many people and so many families and on and all of our lives as a whole has been absolutely devastating Marion Keyes described it as reading like a thriller and there it whips along at a pace it has to be said and there are parts of it that you know i'd be with claire byrne there are parts where i was like i can't actually take the sadness of some of the stuff contained in it yeah and i'm sure that that was uh, you're not you're not a stone yourself It, it has to have an impact on you but equally there has to have been moments in it I'm thinking about Brian O'Donovan's book as well, which is sitting next to yours here. Mm. And, you know, Brian heard stuff in Washington that he was like, what? The, is this is this real? Is this is mm. this is this now 
happening? Like um, Trump considering rolling out Conor McGregor to to get the message out. Was there stuff that you couldn't put in the book or were there moments along the way where you were left scratching your head and wondering what what exactly is happening here? That happens regularly. Like you do have those because like you're in situations like this where you have to think on your feet as a as the people who are wielding the power, like, you know, and people will, will, will come up with mad ideas and stuff like that. Like I remember there's actually one thing in the book which I didn't get to, which is there was a time when the, the government was considering how we can use influencers to in, influence young people to do the right thing on COVID. Uh, and apparently there was one minister and I actually won't give his name on it, but basically they were considering who who, who do the young people listen to? And one minister brought up the name. What about what about uh, Brian Brian O'Driscoll? And it's like, I'm sorry. Now, no disrespect to Brian O'Driscoll, he's a wonderful guy. But I'm sorry, the 16 year olds of Ireland are not that influenced by a guy who retired, <laughs> uh, like you know, eight nine years ago, or when they were in short pants, like you know. It's like there's a, there's a huge detachment, I think, at times from from like I, I actually I've, I've, I dwell a lot on the on the picture and, and how young people are sort of talked about and, and sort of treated over the course of the pandemic because there wasn't a level of ostracization there mm. and like the way that we, we talk about young people it was like there was at times where it felt like whether it was the media or people online or maybe even politicians themselves sort of singling out young people as being the cause of all of our woes which is extraordinarily like it's nonsense really to be honest you know there was a lot of breaches by older people as well which led to led to very horrible things happening as well so look there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there where you, you end up scratching your head at i think that's a bit mad there's one situation as well there's one uh, it's in the book as well i may as well tell the story though Jarla. there was one one of the maddest things that happened over the course of the pandemic was it was actually leo varadkar it was effectively his last speech as Taoiseach and um, he was doing it at Dublin Castle, which is where the cabinet was sitting. And they were he was getting ready to hand over to Michal Martin, who was going to be coming in as Taoiseach. And uh, he left uh, left the podium after giving his his address to the nation. Uh, and he walked out into the courtyard, which is where I was standing with my camera operator, uh, Joan McKenna. And we were waiting there, and I hear a little buzz in my ear. And it's like, OK, we're going to try and get a leaving shot of Varadkar's car pulling out of Dublin Castle. So could you just step aside and we'll get that? And I was like, perfect, that'll be really good. So we're waiting for him. He gets out. He walks over towards his car. He looks over, though. And he sees us probably like maybe about 100 meters away. Like it's a long way away. And he sees us and he, he, he steps back out of the car and starts walking towards us. And I was like, wow, we're going to get we're going to get an exclusive interview here or a comment. And this is going to be really great. But he's getting closer and closer. And I just start hearing faintly, hey, neighbor. And I was like, what? What's he? What's he saying? He's like, hey, neighbor. And I was like, oh, crap. This man knows that I live in Dublin 15 now, which, of course, is, is his is, is his home patch. And I was like, oh, my God, what's happening here? And he's like, when are we going for drinks? And I was like, what? And I, I said to him, I was like, Taoiseach, you're, 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 we're live here. Like, the camera was rolling. It was, the pictures were being broadcast on Virgin what? Media. Uh, there was no sound, thank God, because we were in the middle of hearing a report from one of my colleagues. But I just, the fear that came over me, because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not one for going for drinks with politicians. I don't, I, I don't appreciate that. Like, some people use it to get sources, and that's all. That's totally legit. But I just don't have that But also, that relationship. Weird. But so it was such a bizarre thing to happen and i was just like Taoiseach, Taoiseach, you're alive he's like oh are we and i was like yeah do you want to give us an interview no all right and, and he just walked off, was off, off the other like, direction was he just trying to yeah, be nice I, I think he was probably just trying to be nice i think he was curious he's like oh wow you live you live in our in my, in my neck of the woods it's probably constituency work is really what he was thinking as, <laughs> as, as an irs td is like here let's press the flesh this lad could vote at some he point he was your local influencer uh, exactly yeah <laughs> bad stuff though 
Well, there you have it. That's the first half of my interview with Richard Chambers. There's so much more over on Irishman Abroad Premium at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. This week I released my own Christmas cards to review the year that was 2021. If you like your Christmas cards to be a little bit left of centre and cause a bit of a stir, go to jigser.com and browse the shop there. I have two packs available for this year. They ship the same day if you order before midday. And thanks to Brexit, they only deliver within Ireland. So these are pretty special. Been designing them since 2006. And I think you'll enjoy the box. I try to keep the price exactly what it's been for all that time. So head over to jigser.com and have a look at my Christmas cards there. In terms of the book, it's called State of Emergency, the story of Ireland's COVID crisis. It's a um, a hell of a read and one that you'll need on your shelf in years to come uh, when you've blocked all of this out of your memory will need uh, a reminder of exactly what took place and Richard's written a hell of a book but come on over and hear the rest of it because there's so much more that we get into we get into much greater detail about who these people are that are actually in charge and a bit more on that Stephen Donnelly thing that I mentioned at the top where he basically comes out and says I was never asked to contribute to this when he was. I mean, a straight lie on national television. And Richard has the receipts to prove it. I want to say a massive thanks to Richard, to Brian Connolly for his production, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible, as always. And I'd love you to hear the rest of this interview and all our interviews. Uh, upcoming interviews with the brilliant James O'Brien, Ivana Lynch, Claire Walsh and Jack Whitehall. Not the most Irish man in history, but... Uh, a great friend to the show who has a big film coming out. I'm going to be sitting down with Jack soon for a big interview. You'll hear all of it at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad.